We're going to Amos chapter 9. Some of the minor prophets. So these are the guys at the end of the Old Testament. I always say this, but I'm convinced at night they move around in my Bible. And the next morning when I go to find them, they have rearranged themselves into a different order. can never quite remember the order, uh, but that's okay. There's a bit of a resurgence in popularity of minor prophet names out there. I know a Micah, and I know a Malachi, and I know a Zachary. Not quite Zachariah, but close. Um, I don't know many Amoses yet, but there probably will be a... At some stage in the future, there'll be a resurgence in Amos's, little Amos's running around. Um, I have never preached from Amos, to my knowledge, uh, so this should be fun. Um, but I really feel God has spoken. And I was going to do one message, and then I thought I'll do two or three, and then I thought, no, I'm just going to slow the whole thing down and just go with this idea over the summer. Um, I will get other people involved over the summer, uh, uh, get a few different voices in, but, but I want to just linger on this idea that is coming from Amos chapter 9. Uh, so I've called this series The Rebuilders. Um, let's read from the end. This is a, the, the very last portion of the book of Amos, starting at verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, about probably five or six weeks ago, Stefan was speaking here one Sunday morning. I was in the prayer room before we started, and I was all chilled and relaxed because I didn't have to speak. And I was just catching up on my reading plan. So let's be, you know, confession time here. We sometimes fall behind in our reading plans, especially sometimes in the minor prophets. And I was a wee bit behind in Amos. So I was sitting in there in the prayer room at about probably 10 o'clock one Sunday morning, just churning through a few chapters of Amos. And it's hard work, okay? It's not that cheery a book for about eight and a half chapters of it, but... I felt, I really felt the Holy Spirit bring my attention to this verse. I, I'm sure you have those moments when you're reading the Bible and you just feel God saying, stop. Okay, just think about that. Before you go on and read the next verse or the next chapter or get up and go and do something, just stop. And, and when I read verse 14 of chapter 9, I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, stop. Just chew on that. 
This is the verse that starts off and it says, I will bring my people back from exile, or my people Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild. So that, that is what I'm hanging out over this next couple of months or whatever in the word. The notion that God brings people back from exile and that they rebuild. And as I thought about this, I started thinking about the idea of a calling card. When somebody calls and you're not in, this is, this is almost now an old-fashioned thing, and because you're not in, they leave a card to say that they had called and their number's on the card. And then I started thinking about Batman, because I like to think about Batman. And I was thinking about the end of the first Batman movie, the good movies, you know, the Christopher Nolan ones. At the end of the first one, uh, they're just sort of wrapping things up and Commissioner Gordon uh, is talking to Batman, as you do, on the rooftop. And he tells them about a new sort of menacing character who is in town in Gotham City causing bother. And everywhere he goes, he leaves his card. He leaves his calling card. And that's the calling card because it's the Joker. Yeah? And as, and as I was just thinking about this verse, the, the phrase that came to mind is, is that the Spirit, I, I, I think, was sort of guiding my thinking. And what I wrote down was, in my, in my journal, I wrote, The calling card of those who have returned from exile is rebuilding. When the Joker went around Gotham City and did his thing, he left Joker cards to let people know where he'd been. When somebody calls at your house and you're not in, people leave a card from, I don't know, DPD or, or whatever, whoever's been trying to deliver a parcel. People leave their mark when they've been somewhere, this, this idea of a calling card. And I felt God saying, if people have truly experienced a return from exile, the mark that they will leave on society around them is that they will rebuild stuff. Christians are meant to rebuild, okay? And we're going we're gonna to just mosey through this concept over the next few months, this idea of, of rebuilding. So first of all, who is Amos and what is exile? You will know that every now and again I dip into the exile portion of the Old Testament and find it to be a happy hunting ground to preach the word from. Uh, I think it's probably part of, the, you know, part of the Old Testament that took me a while to get more familiar with. I think a lot of us were quite familiar with Genesis and Exodus and we're quite familiar maybe with, with Joshua and then the story of David and a few bits and pieces. But the exile portion can be a wee bit harder to, to sort of sometimes get your head around. So what, who is Amos and what is exile? Well, Amos is a shepherd from a place called Tekoa. That's how he starts his book. Um, and he says he saw a vision concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. We don't know which earthquake, but we do have a couple of kings named here which give us a rough idea that Amos did his thing about 750 BC. I'm going to put a timeline up in a minute because it is important. Another thing that Amos said later in his book in chapter 7 was, he says to a guy called Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Now, those terms basically mean someone who is a professional prophet. In other words, they made money from going from place to place and acting as a prophet. And it wasn't the best in God's eyes. Jeremiah was plagued with guys like this when he wrote his book. And Amos says, no, I'm not one of these guys. I was just doing my thing. I was a shepherd. I was looking after sheep. 
God called me. I didn't make this up. I'm not doing it for money. I am a genuine prophet. So that's Amos. Now exile. What is exile? Well, on the screen at the minute, that's a line. But it's going to become a timeline. So stick with me. Some of you don't like history. Who doesn't like history? I didn't like history. Okay, just me and Rach? Okay, nobody else. Right, well, I didn't really... I'd like it, I like it now. I didn't like it in school. But it's too late. So, 605 BC, a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, who you've all heard of from the stories of Daniel that you learnt about when you were wee. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and he brings the people into exile. So he takes them from their own land. And don't just nod off here and think to yourself, well, the good bit will be at the end. Right? Stick with it. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. These times are rough. He attacked them about three times in about 10 years and brought people away each time. But that's roughly when it started. And he took the people from Jerusalem, from Israel, from the land that God had given them, and he brought them to Babylon and made them live there. So that was the beginning of a period of exile, which lasted for roughly 70 years. Until about 538 BC when a Persian king called Cyrus conquered Babylon and he told the exiles who were living there, you can go home. Not only can you go home, but I will give you resources to go home and you can go home and you can build your temple. And Cyrus was moved. He was not a follower of God, but he was moved by God to bless God's people and send them back to Jerusalem and back to their own land. Now, in in that exile period, that roughly 70-year period, Daniel was doing his thing. You read the book of Daniel, that's where it sits in history. Towards the start of the exile, Ezekiel was doing his thing and seeing bonkers visions of wheels within wheels and all that stuff. Jeremiah prophesied before the exile began and then a wee bit into the exile. Isaiah and Amos, ages ago about 150 years before it even started. So as we go through this this journey over the next while, we're going to land in the exile itself and what's going on and particularly what happens after it. But we're starting today 150 years before it even began with this guy who got a word from God and started to deliver it to people. After they go back to Jerusalem in 536 BC, you've got what's written in the book of Ezra describes that first group of people who go back and then Ezra himself goes back about halfway through the book. At that point, Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying. And we're going to look when we get there at how their words affected the rebuilders and how important it was for the rebuilders to be hearing the word of God and stirred up by the word of God. Who else have we got? Nehemiah at that point, 445 BC. Nehemiah comes and finds that the walls need built up and he rebuilds the walls. So that's the picture. And we're just going to trundle through that at a nice slow pace and look at and hold in our, our hearts this image that those who come out of exile, out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem, they are rebuilders. And what will they rebuild? And what will we rebuild? Now, the reason that the exile happened, all of this, the good bit is at the end, but all of this is is sort of building up towards it. In Amos chapter 5, you read about how it it says in 5.11, 
you levy a straw tax on the poor. What that says in some other versions of the Bible is you trample on the poor. One of the reasons God sent his people into exile is because they didn't look after the poor. They didn't look after the downtrodden, those out on the margins of society that were overlooked and ignored and not given any value. Not only did God's people ignore them and not look after them, they actually trampled on them. They climbed over the top of them to get to where they wanted to be. That offends God. You trample on the poor, you impose a tax on their grain, and and here's words that we're going to come back to at the end. So hold them. God says to his people, you've built stone mansions. You've built lovely houses for yourselves, but you're not going to live in them. He says, you've planted lush vineyards, but you're not going to drink any of the wine from them. You're going to get a shock, people, because you have been selfish and you have looked out for your own needs and your own desires, but you are not going to get to enjoy what it is that you have yourself tried to build. In verse 12 of chapter 5, God says, I've seen your sin. Another reason why they're going to be taken out of the promised land and exiled to a different land is because of sin. God warned his people over and over again in the Old Testament, if you sin, if you worship idols, if you oppress the poor, you will not stay in the land that I've given you. You will be put out of it. He warns them of that from way back as early as as Deuteronomy. And here he's telling them again that he's aware of their sins. And again, part of their sins is oppression of the innocent, financial deviance, and depriving the poor of justice. These are things that are important to God, okay? And when his people don't engage in them, then he gets ticked. He goes on in in, in chapter 5. This is stingy stuff for a worship leader (laughs) and for a people that like to worship. Listen to what God says. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. He's not talking about school assembly. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Oh, our beautiful music. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Imagine God. Imagine a big worship event and it's all super well organized and and high levels of talent and everything's brilliant and God's just like that. So I won't listen to it. You oppress the poor. You selfishly build your own houses and plant your own vineyards. You don't pursue justice. God says, I want to see justice and I want to see righteousness. Just put your guitar away. Don't bother singing me songs if these are not your priorities, because these should be the priorities of the people of God. And because they're not, God sends them into exile. In verse 26 of Amos chapter 5, he talks about idolatry, another thing that he won't tolerate among his people. You come into the promised land and worship idols, you're going right back out again. You're going right back out again. You're going into exile because of your idolatry. So Amos 5 ends with, Therefore, because of all of these things, I'm sending you into exile. Your sin, your lack of care for the poor, your financial deviance, your empty worship, 
your idolatry, your lack of interest in justice and righteousness, off you go. (laughs) Off you go into exile. To be held accountable for your sins. And one of the things that happened whenever the people went into exile, we've quoted this verse before, but, but not for a while, but it is one of the bleakest moments in the entire Old Testament. Because what God's people had was a temple. Before that, they had a tabernacle. And it was the place where God's presence was seen to dwell. God is everywhere. God inhabits the entire universe. He's not limited to one place, but his people saw the temple as being the place where his name dwelt, where his presence was located. And in Ezekiel 10, 18, at the start of the exile, the glory of the Lord departed. God's presence has left. This is all important. And it'll all come back again. But in Ezekiel 10, 18, the presence leaves. The people go into exile. After 70 years, they do return to Israel, but they're always under foreign rule. So the exile hasn't really ended. They built a temple when they come back. We're going to read about that and look into it over the next month or two. They built a temple, but the glory of God never returned. That's so important. And you're like, no, it's not. And I'm like, yes, it is. It's so important. They built a temple, and in the previous tabernacle and temples that were built in the Old Testament, whenever they finished, God's glory filled the place. The priests couldn't stand. The cloud of his glory came. His presence was there. But whenever the exile was over and they rebuilt the temple, it didn't happen. And they started into their, their, their routines and their sacrifices again, But the glory of God never came at that point. The exile did not end. Even though they had come out of Babylon, they were still a people waiting to be set free from exile at some stage in the future. And into this scene, we have Amos bringing his words. Remember what I said in 5.12 or what what Amos said in 5.11 and 12. We've got people who are focused on their own comfort, neglecting the poor. People who are not interested in justice and righteousness. And because of that, they're going to go into exile. Amos 6, verses 6 and 7 mentions, it says, you, you drink wine by the bowlful, you use the finest lotions. Again, selfishness. Guzzling all the best stuff yourself all the expensive creams and lotions and things and all the luxury that you have, but you don't grieve over the state of the nation. You're not bothered by it. As long as you've got your nice wine and your nice house and some nice lotion to rub on your face, you you are happy and you're not actually looking beyond yourself to grieve over a broken nation. And therefore, you're going to be among the first to go into exile. This is going to propel them into it. And finally, after about eight and a half chapters of that, which is tough going, which is why I fell behind in my reading plan, but I'm glad I caught up. After eight and a half chapters of that, in his commentary, Alec Mateer says, the last half a dozen verses of Amos are the end of the long night. (laughs) You've read through just warnings and judgments and all this stuff And then finally, there's a complete change of tone and you get hope 
at the end of Amos chapter 9. And for the last sort of 10 minutes or so this morning, I just want to sit in these verses and, and pull a few things out that I think will bless you and will hopefully set us up for, for thinking about rebuilding. The pivotal change in the book where it all swings from dark clouds and warnings and storm to hope is this verse here in verse 11 of chapter 9. First verse we read today. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. This is God speaking. God himself is a rebuilder. We are rebuilders. We're going to learn that. But God himself is a rebuilder. I will restore David's fallen shelter. Literally David's fallen tent or David's fallen tabernacle. Now, give me all you got. Just give me all you got. We're going on a wee journey here. I can't put all the verses up. The screen's not big enough, all right? So, but you just got to bear with me. I'm not lying to you. <laughs> if I say that 1 Samuel 4 says something, I promise you it's there. Right? What is David's tabernacle? And this is vital. And you, again, you're maybe thinking he's really excited this morning. And you maybe don't think it is. It is vital. Okay. David's tabernacle. In the Old Testament, there was a box. The box was called the Ark of the Covenant. The box sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Moses and was seen as being the sort of focal point of God's presence, his footstool on the earth. God was seen as being enthroned in heaven and his feet resting on the Ark, his footstool. The Ark of the Covenant was a place where blood sacrifice was brought for sin so that the people could come to the presence of God and not be destroyed. That's the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle of Moses, a place of blood sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines pinch the Ark due to a whole host of reasons, but the Ark falls into enemy hands and the Philistines, nasty boys, you know the nastiest boy of all, Goliath, they have the Ark. They've taken it from God's people. And they put the ark in their temple, the temple of Dagon, who's half man and half fish. If you're going to worship a false god, pick something better than that. He's half man, he's half fish, and he's in this temple, and the box is brought in and put at the feet of Dagon one night after the Philistines have taken it. The night passes and they come in the next morning and Dagon's on the ground. He has fallen over during the night and is bowed down beside God's box, bowing down to the presence of God. So the Philistines scurry around, sweep the floor, put Dagon back up on his wee pedestal and away they go and close the door for night two. And on night two, Dagon falls again. But not only does he fall, his head is broken off and his hands are broken off. In other words, God has just executed his enemy. The presence of God goes into that temple of his enemy for two nights. Day one, night one, day two, night two, day three comes back out having executed his enemy, having dealt with his foe. And the ark is sent away. The ark is retrieved by a lad called David. 
It's one of his priorities when he becomes king is to get the ark of God and bring it back from where it has been resting. But when he brings it back, he doesn't put it in the tabernacle of Moses. He does not bring it back to the place of blood sacrifice. He builds a new tent, which is a house of praise. And you read in the middle chapters of Chronicles about all the musicians, all the singers, 24-7 praise and worship in this tabernacle of David. That's where he brought the ark to, a house of praise. You can read about it in Psalm 78, where the psalmist sums up what happened when the Philistines got the ark from the Israelites. And he says, They angered God with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was furious. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle. So God said about the tabernacle that Moses built, I'm done with that. I'm moving out. And the tent he had sent up, he had set up among humans. That's Moses' tabernacle. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. The Philistines didn't capture the ark. God let it happen because God wanted to move house. Have you ever moved house? It's hard work. And God says, I want to move house from this tabernacle of blood sacrifice to a new house of praise, a house of worship. A house where my name is lifted up and exalted 24-7. I want to move house. I need to get some dummies to help me move, to help carry the stuff. So God allows the Philistines to get the ark and carry it out of Israel and into captivity. And while it's in captivity, then it says, The Lord awoke as from sleep. This for me is, the, is when he's in Dagon's temple, when the ark is in the temple of this false god. The Lord awoke from sleep as a warrior awakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not tr- choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a tent, like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David. So the ark has come out of the house of blood sacrifice. It's gone to the temple of Dagon for three days and two nights. And Dagon's been executed. He's come out the other side and said, I'm done with the blood sacrifices now. I'm going to a house of praise. And he goes to this tent that David built. And when Amos says in his prophecy that God is going to restore David's fallen tent, what he is saying is that God is going to restore the place of presence and praise. A tabernacle will be reinstituted. That will be a place of God's presence and a place, a location, a focal point for worship and praise. That's the promise that Amos has given to the people. Presence and praise will return. Isaiah prophesies roughly not exactly the same time, a wee bit earlier than Amos, I think. But I want you to see what Isaiah says about tabernacles as well. This is important. This is at the end of Isaiah chapter 4. The Lord will create over all of Mount Zion, 
Jerusalem. And over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day, a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a tabernacle. Now, listen to what Isaiah says about this tabernacle that he sees God rebuilding. It will be a tabernacle. It'll be a shade from the heat of the day. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's not that hot at the minute, obviously, but this, this time last year, shade was good. Good to have somewhere to go where you're protected from the heat. A refuge. People need a refuge. In the Psalms, over and over again, we hear God is our refuge, our strong tower. This tabernacle, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be a place that protects people from heat. It's a refuge that they can run to. It's a hiding place from the storm and rain. Ever had a storm in your life and just want to run into a hiding place? Isaiah says in chapter 4, a tabernacle's coming and it will be those things. A shade from the heat, a refuge and a hiding place. And then he goes on Isaiah 32 and he develops it a wee bit more. Listen to this, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. And a man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Not a tabernacle, a man. And at the end of chapter 4 he says there's going to be a tabernacle that will shade people from the heat, be a refuge, be a hiding place from the storm. But in Isaiah 32 verse 2 it says a man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Isaiah says the tabernacle that's going to be raised up is a man. It's not a tent. It's not canvas, it's not a building, it's not a physical, literal stone temple. He says, it's a man. And then John nails it all together and talks about how the word became flesh, a man, and tabernacled among us. The tent is Jesus. The place of God's presence being restored to his exiled people is Jesus. It's not a building. They built a building. God blessed it and, and, and was happy enough with them building it. But his glory never returned and the exile never ended until his presence came in the tabernacle known as Jesus. <laughs> he was the place where people once again encountered the presence of God. And he is the location and the focus of our praise. He is the ark who came out of the place of blood sacrifice, went into the temple of the enemy, the grave, the temple of death, and was there for three days and two nights. And when he came out the other side, the enemy was defeated. And he said, I'm not going back to the place of blood sacrifice. I don't need to anymore. I've paid the price of sin. And I'm going to a new tabernacle, a house of praise and presence where there is no blood because what I've done has paid the price. And the location of the house of praise is, is in Judah. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And Judah literally means house of praise. And whenever Amos says, I will restore David's fallen tabernacle, and you look literally into what the word is, I will restore means I will raise up means I will resurrect <laughs> David's fallen tabernacle the place of presence and praise falls and God says I'm going to resurrect it 
I'm going to resurrect it. And then all the darkness that came before in Amos and all the judgment is gone. And what you've got after this verse, Amos 9.11, where we see this temple, this tabernacle of praise resurrected and lifted up, you see everything change. Now you've got abundant harvest. Now you have got the days coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. So literally, the plowman goes out in the springtime to plow the fields and to sow the new crop. He finds the reapers are still there from the previous year because the harvest has been so abundant. Because because the tabernacle of Jesus has been raised up and the presence of God has returned and the house of praise is established, the church, because of that, the earth is being restored. And it's functioning the way it should. And also because of that, there is a huge harvest. A huge harvest. We've been praying for months and years and and again with more vigor about God send workers into the harvest. Because there is an abundant harvest. And in this scenario, there's so much harvesting to be done that when the next cycle begins, they're still at it. An abundant harvest. The curse of Eden is reversed. After, the, after sin entered in Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam, you're not going to have to work really hard to get anything out of the ground. And for those of you that do that, you know that it's hard work. Clearing thistles and thorns and weeds and planting and, and, and relying on the, on the weather and, and all sorts of different things. And suddenly getting a harvest out of the earth is really hard work because of sin. But after Jesus... <laughs> God's saying things are being put right again. Now that might not mean that weeds stop growing in your garden. (laughs) They're probably still there. But the symbol is a God who is restoring after this resurrection of David's fallen tent, after Jesus has risen. That curse on the land has been reversed. In Amos 9.15, at the very end of the chapter, God says, I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. Why were they uprooted by Nebuchadnezzar to go from Israel to Babylon? They were uprooted because of sin. Because of sin. But God now says, because of verse 11 of chapter 9 and the raising up of David's fallen tabernacle, King Jesus raised from the dead, because of that, sin has been dealt with. The people will never, ever again be uprooted from the land. They were uprooted because of sin. They cannot be uprooted again because sin has been dealt with. Amos, I think, thought he was prophesying, or maybe well, he probably didn't actually because he was so far back. But you, you read it and you think it's focusing just on the end of the 70-year exile and the return from Babylon to Jerusalem. But it's not. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> It's all about Jesus coming and rising and ending the exile of people being separated from the presence of God. Being brought back into it. So the fact that they're restored to the land forever means sin has been dealt with forever. And finally, verse 14, where we started, we finish. Those who return from exile are rebuilders. It is the calling card. It should be, to put things really simply, it should be the case that if somebody walks through a town and sees things have been rebuilt, 
that they then would conclude, oh, Christians have been here because that's what Christians do. They rebuild stuff. Now that could be rebuilding, you know, it could be literal fabric of buildings, but it's more likely to be lives rebuilt, restored. Those who have come back from exile, which I'm pretty sure is probably, I don't know your heart and where you're at, but if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. You've returned from exile. You've returned to the presence of God, to the house of praise, of bringing a sacrifice, not of blood, but of praise. And you should leave a trail behind you of things that have been rebuilt. Putin leaves a trail of destruction <laughs> and people like him. Trail of, of carnage and, and buildings and, and just such visible wreckage. A follower of Jesus should leave a trail of things rebuilt. Lives rebuilt because we've come out of exile and that's who we are. We are rebuilders. Listen to how it changes. Follow me here. Before they were in, in exile, they were told in Amos 5.11... But the vineyards, you've planted lush vineyards, you're not going to drink any wine. You're not going to enjoy the produce of your work because of your sin. That was before. Then, resurrection of David's fallen tabernacle. And read about the vineyards afterwards in 914. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. Not only that, but in 913, new wine will drip from the mountains. You'll not even need a vineyard. Such is the abundance of the goodness of the God to whom his people have returned. You see the change. The hinge is in the middle. <laughs> That's the key moment. The resurrection of David's fallen tent is the key moment. And then look at before, back in 5.11, look at the, the building before. Though you have built stone mansions. What's a mansion? It's a house. Though you have built stone houses, you will not live in them. Then we have the pivot verse. I will resurrect David's fallen tabernacle. He has. Historical fact. King Jesus raised from the dead. And now he says, not you will build houses and you won't live in them. But he says, I'll bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild houses. No. He says, they're going to rebuild cities. <laughs> cities. Dream big. Because God's people who return from exile don't just go back to building wee houses. They build cities. They build cities. And they live in them. They dwell in them. Who wants to build a city? Eh? What does it even look like? If you think I'm talking about going and getting a pile of blocks, and, and I'm not. <laughs> but that might be part of it. You never know. What, what will we rebuild? What will we rebuild? We're going to learn over the next months what's important in rebuilding. What are the priorities? What's the posture of a rebuilder? What, 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 you know, what do they prioritize over everything else? How do you rebuild when you face opposition? Why, why did the rebuilding stop? What gets the rebuilding started? We're going to look at all of that. But right now the challenge is just what will you rebuild? What will we rebuild? 
as a church. Because if a community has come out of exile and is gathering here in this town, in this time, something should get rebuilt. People should get rebuilt. Relationships rebuilt. Lives restored. And I do believe, and I, I do just hold on to this sort of pipe dream that the actual town itself, the actual economy of the town is rebuilt. I have no idea what that looks like. But wouldn't it be lovely to sit up at the top of that street in 20 or 30 years and look down the street and say, look at that. The, the very atmosphere, the very fabric of the economy of the town, different because exiles rebuild stuff. Who wants to build a city? What, what will you rebuild? Isaiah, just to finish off, look at how the, the same emphasis is, is in Isaiah 61.3, quoted by Jesus, these early verses of Isaiah 61 in, in Luke 4. They will be called, that's you, they will be called oaks of righteousness. Not people who neglect righteousness. We can just imagine Isaiah thinking, what is the strongest thing I know? <laughs> what is the most immovable thing in nature all around me? An oak. Okay. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild. Again, Isaiah saying about the people a couple of hundred years after him who will come out of exile, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll restore places long devastated, renew ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And again in Isaiah 58, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of, of streets with dwellings. Wouldn't it be great if people talked about the church like that? Hey, wouldn't it be class if people who didn't go to church and weren't interested in church uh, just were able to acknowledge and say, do you know what, those people build stuff. That's just what they do. They're rebuilders. From the message, Eugene Peterson, same verse, Isaiah 58, 12. You'll, listen to this, this is class. This is, yeah, this is a mission statement if ever there was one. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins. Rebuild and renovate. Make the community livable again. Make the community. Make it a place where people can thrive and flourish. Not a place of fear and brokenness, but a place of thriving and life. I will bring my people Israel back from exile they will rebuild. Are you ready for a wee journey of what it looks like? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for stirring us up and bringing this to our attention, Lord. And I pray, God, that it will grasp our hearts. I thank you that because of the resurrection of David's fallen tent, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. The exile is over. And we can come into your presence. We can come and bring you our sacrifice of praise that we're going to do now. And Lord, I pray that you would just stamp on us that the old priorities of building our own houses and planting our own vineyards need to just move down the list. 
that those are the things that will come when we seek first the kingdom of God. And our first priority is to rebuild cities and to rebuild lives so the glory and the splendor of God may be revealed. Lord, help us to ponder this. There's a lot in these verses, a lot in this message this morning, but I pray that you would help us to remember and to reflect on it and be moved by the power of your word and your spirit. Amen.